This is episode 32 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. We've been looking at three truths that will deliver us from the shame and guilt of trying to live the higher Christian life in the flesh by our own strength and, of course, failing miserably. For review, truth one of these three truths states we are incapable of pleasing God or producing anything good with our flesh by our own efforts with our sinful nature, no matter how hard we try. And if you haven't come to grips with truth one yet, I suggest you go back and review Romans 7, especially verse 18. But today we will introduce truth two, which reveals to us the person who can deliver us from the power of sin, shame, guilt, and self-condemnation in our lives because of our inability to live and experience the higher Christian life. And this person is none other than God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin to unpack truth two today as we learn more about the higher Christian life. Let's jump right in, shall we? Today is the beginning of a new week, and in this post, we're going to begin to explore the second of these three great truths that are designed to free us from the guilt and shame that we all experience when we try to live the higher Christian life in the flesh by our own power and by our own strength and by our own resources and fail miserably. We try and fail and try and fail and fail and fail and fail to the point sometimes we want to give up. I mean, does that sound familiar? Unfortunately, it's a description of many who begin their walk with Christ in faith. Think about this, only to think that now that we've known Christ for a while, now that we're mature in our faith, that we no longer need to live and walk and relate to him in faith, but instead we'll complete our walk in our maturity in the flesh as if somehow faith and dependence on him is a sign of weakness or frailty or something that real Christians and real men never do as they grow into spiritual adulthood. Nothing could be further from the truth. So lest we forget, God has given us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to live in us and through us for a reason. And it is he and he alone, the Spirit of God, who provides all we need in this life forever. There is nothing we need that he can't provide. As it says in Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And that power that works in us is the Holy Spirit. So before we jump into truth number two, let's do a quick review of truth number one. Truth number one states that we are incapable of pleasing God or producing anything good with our flesh or by our own efforts because we're using our sinful nature to do that no matter how hard we try. It's not going to happen to anyone ever. And if you haven't come to grips with believing truth number one, I suggest you stop right now, you go back to Romans chapter seven, you read about the old man and the new man and the flesh and the spirit, especially verse 18, to make it clear and confident and firmly believe it in your mind. 
Verse 18 of Romans 7 says, For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find in my flesh. And then he goes on, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. Sound familiar? And the evil that I will not to do, that I not casually do, but that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, in the old man, in the fallen nature. And then he goes on at the end of this chapter to say, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body, flesh of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, exclamation point. That's who delivers us from this by the atonement on the cross, but by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit allows us to live in victory, free from shame and condemnation, from trying to serve him in the flesh. Again, truth one, We are incapable of pleasing God or producing anything good with our flesh by our own efforts because it's so intertwined with our sinful nature, no matter how hard we try. And let's be honest, truth one can be a bit discouraging, especially for those of us who have a vision of God that's kind of small, that we call it a little God syndrome, that God's not big enough to handle all our problems, so therefore we have to jump in and help God help us. But we'll talk about that aspect of God later. But actually, truth one should not be discouraging. It should be great news, because just like salvation, it puts us in a place where we must admit that we are helpless to save and redeem ourselves, and therefore we need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need someone greater, more powerful than we are to do just that. Thus, we're dependent on him for what we cannot accomplish ourselves, no matter how hard we try, how long we try, no matter how much intensity we put into it, we cannot save ourselves. And salvation is appropriated to us by faith. The same thing applies to the Holy Spirit and living the higher Christian life and the life of sanctification. Here is truth two. And truth two says that God has given us the Holy Spirit, and we will discuss why he did that in our next couple sessions. But God has given us the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us for the purpose, among other things, of working in us, and this is a quote from Philippians 2.13, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. One more time. Truth 2 states that God has given us the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us for the purpose of working both to will and to do in us for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit will allow and empower us to will and to do for his good pleasure. And by the way, the his in this verse is God the Father. It's not you, it's not me, it's not anyone we know, and especially it's not your flesh or your unredeemed humanity or your will and volition and your character and your might and your power and all the things we admire about a man in our narcissistic culture today. But let's take this chapter and let's read it in context. 
In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul begins by showing that unity among believers especially comes when each of us reacts to each other in humility. We find that in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. And how this seemingly impossible task is accomplished of dealing with humility with people that irritate us is by the power of the indwelling spirit. Then he goes on after that to show the humility of Christ. And the idea is the fact if Jesus could portray this much humility as our model and our guide and our master, how much more should we who are called by his name display this much humility? This is from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And as you read this, I suggest you get your Bible out, you read it several times, read it slowly, savoring each word. It is a marvelous picture of Christ. Here's what it says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think like he thinks. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but... He made himself of no reputation. God Almighty made himself of no reputation in our eyes, taking on the form of a bondservant, of a voluntary slave, and coming in the likeness of men. Not the king of the world exalted as man, but a humble man despised. And being found in appearance as a man, he voluntarily humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, the most horrific public death imaginable. Therefore, because of his humility, God also has highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, the angelic, the human, and the demonic realm, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We're looking at Philippians 2 in context. And after that marvelous statement about the humility of Christ, finally Paul exhorts the church in Philippi to live out that humility and live out that faith that we have in him as beacons of eternal light revealing the Father. It's the same truth that Jesus shared in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world, verse 14. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Hence, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul exhorts the church in Philippians 2.15 to be, quote, blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is a life of sanctification. This is a life where the world is heading down its own path, but we are so sanctified, so holy, so in enamored with God himself, that we shine as light in darkness, blameless, harmless, and without fault. This is Philippians 2.15. But between Philippians 
2, 5 through 11, and Philippians 2, 15, embedded between these two statements is found one of the glorious reasons that God gave each of us the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, and we know that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit, to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God in the person of the Holy Spirit working his good pleasure, his divine will out in your life. But there's more. The truth that we need to internalize is the fact that what do we need more than we already have? Why can't we just rest and abide in him? Why can't we let go and let God? Let's take a look at this verse a little bit closer, defining a few of the words. Here's what it says. For it is God who works. The Greek word means to be effective, operative, active. It implies energy. It's the word we get energy from. For it's God who works with this operative, active energy in you. Make it personal, in me. Put your name in this verse. Both to will, and the Greek word there means to desire with a purpose and intention. It implies active volition, that there's a will, but actually a force that's put behind that will to make sure it's accomplished. For a God who works both to will and to do, and this is the exact same word that was translated works earlier in this sentence. For it is God who works, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And that means his gracious purpose, a delightful fixed intention of benevolent favor on you, a good intention. Let's sum this all together. So it is God in the person of the Holy Spirit who is at work or currently working in you with a purpose and attended goal for your life. And that goal, which he predestined when he called you to himself, is for you to be conformed to the image of his son. We find that in Romans 8, 29, one of my favorite segments of scripture. Romans 8, 29 begins this chain of events of eternity past into our present where God calls us into himself. For whom he foreknew, you and I, these he also predestined. He predetermined our outcome to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why he called us. That's why he saved us. That's why he redeemed us, to be conformed to Christ. Why? That he, Christ, might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So we are predestined and called to be conformed to the image of his son. And this verse continues to go on that says that he is currently working to do this purpose for you for no other reason than his good pleasure, or with a desire to be gracious and benevolent to you. It has nothing to do with your merit or your abilities or that you're better than someone else. It's simply because he chose to bless us in the midst of our sin and depravity. This is God's promise to us. Better yet, this is your personal promise from God. And it is one of the reasons why his spirit dwells in each of us. Now think this through. So if this is true, what more do you need than what you already have in him? 
or what do you have to add to your life by your own strength and resources and your own will and volition and your own common sense to add to what he's already given you to somehow make up for some perceived shortcoming or deficiency the Holy Spirit has in your life? Like, how ridiculous does that sound? And if you are, as it says in Colossians 2.10, complete in him, and if the fullness of him who fills all in all, from Ephesians 1.23, abides in you, then tell me, what more do you need that you don't already have? Is there anything impossible for the God who lives in you? This is the foundation of truth, too. But before we dig any deeper into this truth, you must come to a firm belief in your heart that God has already provided in himself as the Holy Spirit dwelling in you more than you can hope for, more than you can ever imagine, more than you need. And he is well able to complete what he has begun in you for his own glory and for his good pleasure. Or simply put, because he wanted to. Why did he call you? Because he wanted to. Why has he empowered you? Because he wanted to. Why does he bless you? Because it makes him feel good. You were loved that much. Would you rest in that today? And tomorrow we'll look a little bit at what it means to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and what that blessing entails or provides for us who are seeking the higher Christian life. So be blessed today. And we'll talk again tomorrow.